0: We're in the middle of a study on the Beatitudes. Jesus is talking in Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to dive into that right now. So if you want to grab your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 5, we're going to explore what Jesus says to His new disciples, what He's teaching them right at the beginning of His ministry. You can follow along at efree.org slash Bible if you want to or at the UVersion Bible app, if that's something that you would like to do. Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, says this. One day, as he saw the crowds gathering, Jesus went up on the mountainside and sat down. His disciples gathered around him, and he began to teach them. God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for him. For the kingdom of heaven is theirs. God blesses those who mourn, for they will be comforted. God blesses those who are humble, for they will inherit the whole earth. And our verse four today is verse six, which says, God blesses those who hunger and thirst for justice, for they will be satisfied. Now, if you missed some of our earlier messages in this series, it's important for you to know that when the Bible says God blesses, or in some versions, blessed, or in some versions, happy are, what is meant here is a God-given happiness. It's a happiness that God provides. It's not a fleeting happiness, a momentary happiness based on circumstances or situation. It's a happiness that God gives, sort of an internal joy, a deep joy that comes specifically from God and the hope that we have in God. And this list of blessings Or things that will make us happy is really interesting, because it's very different than the list that I think you or I would come up with, right? If we were to come up with this list, probably our list would look something like this. Blessed are the wealthy, right? They're the happy ones. Blessed are the athletes. Blessed are the healthy. Blessed are the powerful. Blessed are the popular. That's the kind of list that I think we would come up with. Because those are the people we think, well, surely that's what's going to make you happy. But Jesus' teaching is very different. It's different today. It was different 2,000 years ago in the culture back then. This is very unordinary. Jesus is saying right here at the beginning of his ministry in what we've been calling new disciple orientation, Jesus has been saying, my disciples will look very different. The people who will be in the kingdom of heaven will look very different. Than the people who the world thinks will be there, the people who the rest of Judaism thinks will be there, the people who the religious elites, the scribes, the Pharisees, the priests, the people they think will be there. Jesus is saying, this is all different than what you have thought you have known. Jesus is saying here in our verse for this morning that God-given happiness comes to those who hunger and thirst for justice because they will be satisfied. So to make this easier for us to understand, we're going to break it down into chunks. We're going to ask some questions and answer those questions. And the first question we're going to ask is, what does it mean to hunger and thirst? What does it mean to hunger and thirst? Now for our elder meetings this year at the church, we added a new element, which is at the beginning of every elder meeting, we share a meal together. And it's an awesome time. Uh, we, first of all, it's just awesome food. And that right there just sets your meeting up for success. We have great food. We get to talk together, make sure those relationships are strong, make sure we're united together before we get into kind of the church leadership stuff. And so different people have been bringing us meals for those elder meetings. And, and it's really, really fantastic. This last Thursday, someone brought us a meal, which was amazing. But as good as the meal was, dessert was even better. This person's specialty, and I'm not gonna say who it is because you would all just hoard them for the recipe. This person's specialty is an orange bourbon pecan pie. And it tastes as good as it sounds. I don't know how you feel about bourbon in your pie, but I am very pro. (laughs) It was fantastic. The best pecan pie, maybe even the best pie I've ever had in my life. And we ate that, and after dinner we have a time of prayer. And so we pray for a while. But I have to confess, during that whole prayer time, it was really hard not to think about getting another piece of that pie. And I felt so unspiritual. Because I'm praying, thinking about pie. Praying, thinking about pie. And just trying to bring my thoughts back away from pie to prayer, pie to prayer. And we get done with the prayer time and there's a short break before we get into our agenda for the evening and several of us walked right over to the pie. So I don't think I was the only one. At the end of the night, I went home how was elder meeting? We had the most amazing pie, <laughs> and the meeting was good too. I went to sleep thinking about that pie that night. It was so good. That's the first sense of hungering and thirsting that you can get out of this passage. It's something that you have tasted, and it's so good that you just want more of it. Like, give me more. Whatever that I've had a little bit of it, and now I want more. I want another piece. I want more and more and more of that thing because I've tasted it, and it's so good. That's one sense of hungering and thirsting in Matthew 5, 6. But there's another sense of hungering and thirsting in this verse. Several years ago, I had the chance to lead a group of guys through the mountains of China. And we went through visiting towns and villages that had never been reached before to share the gospel with them. And so for many days, we we hiked miles and miles a day up and down these mountains in southern China. And One of the challenges of going through a different country, especially when you're out in the wilderness like this, is that not only can there be a lot of viruses and bacteria that you can get that that are not healthy, but even just the stuff that they're used to, we're not used to. And so we can get very sick very quickly. We had to take bottled water with us everywhere, but there was one particular hike where we were between sort of villages for a couple of days and we ran out of water. And that is not a good place to be in. As we're hiking up and down these mountains, our throats are getting parched. We just need something to kind of wet our mouths. We're just so dry. The sun is beating down on us like an oven. And as we're walking, because the dry, the ground is so dry, our boots are kicking up dust that's getting into our mouths and that makes it worse. And we just need some water. We had rationed everything we had. Now it was gone. There's no water source around. And I, I don't think I've ever been as thirsty as I was at that part in that journey. And we weren't weren't anywhere near done. We had a long ways to go. And I remember the moment when we crested a hill, and we looked down into a valley, and down there below, we saw, past all of the the dirt and the dust that was floating in the air, we saw a river. And we thought, oh, finally, I can get down there. We scooped up some water. We had some purification stuff with us so that we could drink and finally quench our thirst. That's the other sense of hungering and thirsting that you can have in mind here. And both of these are, are equally valid ways to understand this hungering and thirsting. It's not limited to one of those. You see both of those throughout Scripture. These are illusions probably that Jesus is intentionally making in this language of hungering and thirsting. To hunger and thirst after justice is to crave something that you've tasted, and you know how good it is, and you just want more and more of it. But it's also craving something that is critically important to your life something that's essential, something that without this I feel like I might die. I just have to have it. Like that water when you're so thirsty, you just have to have it. So Jesus is saying that this is what will happen with his disciples. This is what will happen with the people that will be in the kingdom of God. They will crave justice because of how good and satisfying it is and because it is absolutely essential to their lives. They have to have it. But that brings us to another question, which is what does it mean To hunger and thirst specifically for justice. What does it mean to hunger and thirst, to crave justice? Well, justice is when wrongs are righted. Justice is when things are fair, when things are done rightly. From our perspective, from the Bible's perspective, it's when everything is done according to God's will. Because God is fair and God is just and everything with God is right. And so justice is when God's will is done everywhere. When everything is right, The idea is being righteous when righteousness is done everywhere. And that's another word that you could use to translate Matthew 5, 6. In fact, many versions will do that. They will say that there's a hunger and thirst for righteousness. Both of those, righteousness and justice, are legitimate interpretations of the Greek word that's used here. In fact, you kind of need both of those words to understand exactly what he is saying. He's communicating both of those ideas. Both justice and righteousness are accurate. There, are, there is this sense in which we want just things to be done in the world. There's sort of a natural desire for it, and for those that are followers of Jesus, there's sort of a supernatural desire for it, where we want to see God's will done everywhere. We desire that. We long for the time when everything will be fair and just and right. But here's the important distinction. This is not because it makes me feel better. See, there's a lot of justice activism that's designed to make me feel better. Give me a role to play so that I can feel like I did something, contributed something, so that I can resolve this kind of guilt that I feel for some injustice in the world, and so I feel better now. That's not the idea here. This is not dealing with justice so that I can feel better about myself compared to other people. Well, I care about this cause or this thing that I think is more just, and you don't, and so I feel so good about myself. I'm such a wonderful person because I care about this justice issue more than other people. That's not, that's not what's in mind here. This is a justice that has to do with God. That's implicit in what Jesus is saying. This is God's justice. Not justice because I want it. Justice because God wants it and I want what he wants. I want God's justice done everywhere. Not my perception of justice. It's not just a cause that I latch onto. I want God's will done everywhere. D.A. Carson says of these people, he says, all unrighteousness grieves them and makes them homesick for the new heaven and new earth. The home of righteousness. And that's exactly what we find in 2 Peter. Second, oh, hey, guys, this just went flying on me. You may have to. I don't know why it did that. I'll see if I can get back to where we were. There we go. Second Peter chapter 3. Oh, you know what it is? This clicker is sticking. That's not a, that's not a good thing when your clicker sticks. Hopefully, we won't do that again. Second Peter chapter 3 says, but we are looking forward to the new heavens and new earth He has promised. A world filled with God's righteousness. See, that's what these people are, have to look forward to. They're craving that day. And not that we don't work to try to see that happen now as well. But they're craving that day when God's righteousness will be everywhere. God's justice will be everywhere. That cannot happen until God makes that happen. And so we long for that. But there's a very personal aspect to this justice too. Because if we long for justice to be done everywhere, then that has to include me. That means that what God views as just and right and fair and true and pure has to happen in my life and in my thoughts and in my actions. And so there's a personal aspect to this justice that, that is well described as righteousness. I want righteousness in my own life. It's a craving, a hunger, and a thirst for things to be right in my own life. Jesus said in Matthew 5:20, but I warn you, unless your righteousness is better than the righteousness of the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now that presents a problem for us. Because these teachers of religious law, these Pharisees back in Jesus' day, these were the spiritual superheroes. These were the religious celebrities. These were the people that, from an outward perspective, followed every law ever written and even made up new ones to keep them from breaking the ones that were written. These were the people that really did everything right. This is the most religious person you've ever met in your life. And Jesus is saying, you are gonna have to be better than those people in order to be in my kingdom. Better than the most religious, spiritual person you have ever met or heard of or seen. So let me pause there. And just catch us up on where we're at in the Beatitudes right now. Because this is a little bit of a different approach than many people have heard when tackling the Beatitudes. There is a progression to the Beatitudes. They build on each other. And Jesus, again, is communicating to his disciples in new discipleship orientation, here's what you can expect from being my disciple. This is what this is gonna look like. This is what you're gonna learn over the next few years. This is like a snapshot, a summary of what the rest of Jesus' teaching will be all about. So, what have we learned so far? Well, first of all, I have to recognize my spiritual poverty. There is nothing I have in my spiritual bank account that I can bring to God and trade in and say, there you go. Is that good enough? Can I get in now? I am spiritually bankrupt. Second, I have to mourn my brokenness, my immorality, my sinfulness, my wrongdoing in the eyes of God. I have to be humble before God. God blesses those who are humble. I have to be humble before him, realizing my sin, realizing the fact that he is God and I am not, and there's no reason he should accept me because of my life, because of the sin that is in my life. And then, verse 6, I have to crave justice and righteousness. But here's the thing. If I recognize my spiritual poverty, and I mourn that brokenness, and I am humble before God, and I have admitted that I cannot... earn anything from God on my own, and I've reached this point. I have now seen that there is righteousness. There is justice in the world. There is God's way of doing things, and I've recognized that I'm not it. I haven't made it. I haven't reached that in my life, and so I hunger, and I thirst for it because I don't have it. The reason I crave it is because I can't get it. That's why I want it so badly, And if you've gone through that progression from spiritual poverty to brokenness to humility, now you've realized the distance that is between you and God. And you, but I want to be with him. But I want what's right done in my life. I want what's right done in the world. But I can't do that. I've just admitted that I can't do that. Do you ever feel that way in your life today? Like there is good that I want to do, but I don't do it. And there's bad stuff that I don't want to do, but I do it anyway. I mean, does anybody else feel like that? You don't have to raise your hands. I know you all should raise your hands, but. Yeah, we we live that way in our life. That's why Paul said in the book of Romans chapter 7, he says, I know that nothing good lives in me. That is in my sinful nature. I want to do what is right, but I can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. It's a pretty hopeless and helpless outlook on life, isn't it? It's a very discouraging way to look at things. I know what I should do. I want to do right. I want justice. I want what's righteous, but I can't do it. And I don't want to do what's unrighteous, but I do it anyway. And Paul says, this is incredibly frustrating. This is incredibly discouraging. And if that's the case, then how can this desire for righteousness, for justice, ever be satisfied? If Paul, one of the godliest people I could ever imagine who wrote all these books of the Bible, who had this direct connection where the Holy Spirit would give him inspiration to put into Scripture, if that guy is saying, I can't do the good things I know I ought to do, like I know I should do them, but I I can't do it, then what hope is there for you and me? It's incredibly discouraging. It's incredibly depressing, and this is exactly where Paul ended up. He says this next, oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? You know, most people live in this reality. Most of the people you know, your coworkers, your classmates, your neighbors, your friends maybe, some of them, live in this reality. A life that is dominated by sin and by death and what hope is there to ever be satisfied in righteousness or justice like Jesus says. If even Paul says, I can't do it. How can we be satisfied? How can that craving, that hunger for righteousness, for justice ever be satisfied like Jesus said? I mean, was Jesus telling the truth here? Was he he says you will be satisfied. How will we be satisfied? And the secret to the satisfaction of that craving for righteousness, for justice is in admitting that we can't do it on our own. That we need God to do it for us. That's why we have to start by admitting our spiritual poverty. By mourning our sin, by being humble before God, recognizing that we are nothing compared to him. We can't earn our salvation with him. And then we hunger and we crave justice and righteousness, but we can't get it on our own. This is exactly where Jesus wanted his disciples. For them it's a new paradigm, because the culture at the time said, you do enough good stuff and God's going to accept you. You follow these rules, you make sure you don't do the bad stuff, you do the right stuff, okay, yeah, you're going to do some bad stuff, but as long as nobody sees it, then it's okay. And you're going to do some bad stuff, but as long as you do enough good stuff to outweigh the bad stuff, that matters to God, you know? Or you're going to do some bad stuff, but as long as you do enough good stuff that you did more good stuff than that person did good stuff, then your good stuff will get you into the good place. Because God grades on a a curve, and so he's going to let you in. It's kind of like that whole, how do you If you need to get away from a bear and you're with someone else, all you got to do is run faster than the other person. You don't have to run faster than the other bear. As long as 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 you can run faster than the other person, you're good. But Jesus is saying that is not how it works. He's introducing this new concept through the Beatitudes. That's not how it's going to work in my kingdom. Remember, we've talked about how from their perspective, who are the people that were going to be prominent in the kingdom of God? It's going to be the zealots. It's going to be the warriors, the champions, the religious elites, the, the priests, Those surely are the people, the people who look like they have it all together, who look like they're so religious and spiritual. They do all the right stuff, all the right external stuff. And Jesus is saying, that is not the type of person that's gonna be in my kingdom. And here's why. You can hunger and thirst for righteousness, but you are spiritually bankrupt. You can't get it on your own. So I need to give you, Jesus says, my righteousness. That's what has to happen for you to be accepted by God. If you bring nothing to the table, then someone's gotta bring something on your behalf. And that's what Jesus does. So Paul, he continues right after this verse. In verse 25, he says, thank God the answer is in Jesus Christ, our Lord. I'm such a miserable person. Who will free me from this life dominated by sin and death? It's Jesus Christ, our Lord. And then he says, so now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus, And because you belong to him, he's talking to people that have already trusted in Jesus, because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. That is how we are freed from the life that he talked about. He says the law of Moses, that Old Testament law, was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature. See, at this time, a lot of people thought, as long as I keep the law of Moses and the extra laws we built around the law of Moses, then that will save me. That will be good enough for God. And Paul here is saying, the law of Moses can't save us because we're weak in our sinful nature. Here's the thing, no matter how good you are, you can't keep that whole law, every part of it. And just one little screw up, one little mess up is enough to make you imperfect, to make you not acceptable, to make you not be able to come into God's kingdom. So so God did what the law could not do. He sent his son in a body like the bodies we sinners have. And in in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving us his son as a sacrifice for our sins. You see, there is a substitution that happens here. We get his, his son as a sacrifice for our sins, and so he pays the penalty for us. He takes our sins on himself. And then he says, he did this. He did this so that the just requirement of the law would be fully satisfied for us. Now think about that, the just, for craving justice, the just requirement of the law, it was a good requirement of the law, but we couldn't follow the law perfectly. It would be satisfied for us because of what Jesus did for us, who no longer follow our sinful nature, but instead follow the Spirit. You see, in Matthew chapter five, Jesus was giving a picture to his disciples of what he was about to do. His followers, his disciples would hunger and thirst for justice, for righteousness, and they would be satisfied, but not by anything they would bring to the table, not by anything they could do on their own, only by what Jesus was going to do for them. He hadn't done it yet. He hadn't done it yet at this point in time. He had more time to spend with them and minister with them and teach them and train them, and this was just the beginning of him saying, hey, here's here's the deal. I know you try to follow the law, that's not gonna do it for you. That's not gonna cut it because you can't do it perfectly. You have to come before God with spiritual brokenness and poverty and mourning and humility. And then the hunger that you have and the thirst that you have for righteousness will be satisfied, but not not the way you think it will be. It's gotta be through something else. So Paul says in Romans chapter 10, Christ has already accomplished so we're jumping forward in time now. Jesus in the Beatitudes is talking about something that's about to happen. Paul now is talking about something that just happened. For Christ has already accomplished the purpose for which the law was given. As a result, all who believe in him are, what? Made right with God. Not that they become right on their own, but by believing in him, they are made right with God. And then he tells the Corinthians, for God made Christ who never sinned, to be the offering for our sin so that we could be made right with God through Christ. So here's the picture we have so far. If we admit that there's nothing good in us, there's nothing we bring to the table, we mourn our brokenness, we humble ourselves before God, he will make us right with him. We will actually get to have his righteousness applied to our spiritual bank account. We get to have his righteousness put onto us. And so God, when he looks at us, He doesn't see you as the person with all of your sin anymore if you've believed in Jesus. He sees the righteousness of Jesus. Now that doesn't change the fact that you still struggle with sin. We're still on this planet. We're still on this earth. We're still in these bodies. We still have sinful natures. We still have sinful desires. But as far as God sees us, we would use the word positionally from a theological perspective. Positionally, God sees us through the righteousness of Jesus, not our own unrighteousness because Jesus died so that His righteousness could be applied to us. That doesn't mean that we're not going to struggle. That doesn't mean that we don't wrestle with unrighteous desires. In fact, Paul, when he's writing to Timothy in 2 Timothy, he says, run from anything that stimulates youthful lusts. Instead." Pursue righteous living. Now, why do you have to pursue it? Why is Paul telling Timothy, Timothy, who oversees many churches in Ephesus, Paul is telling Timothy, pursue righteous living. Why? Because he's not there yet. Because none of us are there yet. All of us still struggle and wrestle with sin. And so, becoming righteous is something that Jesus has to apply to us. But living righteously is still something we have to actively work at. He says, run from anything that stimulates youthful lusts. Instead, pursue righteous living, faithfulness, and love, and peace, And then he says something really interesting. Enjoy the companionship of those who call on the Lord with pure hearts. I want to leave you with some practical application that you can take away from today. Three things that I think will help us as we understand this beatitude and its implications for us. The first one is this. Check your diet. What are the things that you crave? What are the things that you're allowing into your menu every day? The things that give you an appetite for something. Are you pursuing righteousness, like Paul said? Are you allowing some things in your life that are giving you more of an appetite for youthful lusts? That are allowing those things to be a part of your spiritual diet and your menu throughout the day instead of righteous living, that hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Now I'm I'm gonna move away from the obvious here, which is don't crave and pursue unrighteous things hunger and thirst for righteous things. But I want to I go into something a little bit more nuanced. Because we can have our direction focused at the righteous stuff, and just by moving a couple of degrees off, we can focus on something else, which I would call counterfeit righteousness. And this is one I think we have to be especially careful about. Because it's really, really easy to mistake our pursuit of counterfeit righteousness for righteousness. And if we do that for a really long time, we start to believe with all our heart that the counterfeit righteousness that we're pursuing is actually the righteousness that God wants. What do I mean by that? Sometimes we will take our preferences and our traditions or the way we grew up or the things that we did in my church when I was a kid or whatever that is, and we will apply those as if those come right out of God's word, as if that is righteousness. We will take things that are comfortable and familiar to us, and we will give them a heightened sense of spirituality, of religious sacredness that they do not deserve. It's counterfeit righteousness. It often starts as something good. I remember when I was younger being told how I was supposed to do my devotions. There's a very specific formula that I was told by multiple people, this is how you're supposed to spend your time with God. And they had a whole kind of plan worked out and how many minutes you spent on this and all that kind of thing. And I did that for a while and I thought, oh, this is what I'm supposed to do. And then I struggled because it just, it didn't didn't quite work for me. It didn't feel genuine. It felt like I was going through the motions to check in the boxes. And I finally said, why am I even doing this? This is not, I'm just checking the boxes here. It's because they found that that pattern worked beautifully for them in their walk with God. And this is what we do as Christians. We often find something that works well for us and we think, because it worked for me, it's gotta work for everybody else too. And so we write a book. And we say, this is how God really wants us to live because it's what worked for me. But newsflash, God made us all differently. And there are a lot of things that we read in books or that we hear preached oftentimes that do not actually come from God's word. They come from tradition or preferences or just, here's a good thing that worked great for me. But it may not be what God wants for everyone else. Now, if it's clear in God's word, then it's clear. But if you can't support it from God's word, then you need to hold that very loosely. There are lots of things like that that I've heard so much growing up in the church. You know, I remember when we first started being able to use um, Bibles on our computers and then Bibles on our phones and Bibles on our tablets And and there was a, a whole kind of discussion around, well, is it okay if it's coming out of a screen? Like, does it have to be the, you know, like Gutenberg gave us this beautiful, majestic printing press version. Can we just use the printing press version? Isn't that more spiritual? And the answer to that is no. The Bible that Jesus used did not come off a printing press. In fact, it wasn't even based on paper. It was usually scrolls that he got out of the temple. He asked for a scroll of Isaiah. He read it. None of us are walking around with scrolls saying, well, that's the spiritual way to read the Bible. It doesn't really matter how you're consuming the word of God. If you're consuming the word of God, praise God for that. Same thing is true of, of styles of music or styles of dress. Sometimes we get it into our head that there's some more sacred version of that or this is better than the other thing or because it's what I grew up with or it's because it's older or whatever it is. None of that is real righteousness. Those are great things for you. That doesn't mean that in God's eyes, that's what everyone else has to do in order to be spiritual. In fact, it's the exact same thing that time and time again, Jesus confronted the Pharisees on. Don't pursue counterfeit righteousness. Don't hunger and thirst for counterfeit righteousness. Hunger and thirst for real righteousness. Check your diet. What's on the menu tomorrow? What are you gonna do tomorrow morning that's gonna help you pursue righteousness in your life? Are you gonna spend time with the word of God? The Bible talks about the the Bible as being food to us. Are you gonna spend time there? Is that part of your diet? Praying to God. Are you gonna spend any time dedicated in prayer to God tomorrow? What happens Monday through Saturday is what proves what happened on Sunday was real. It should not make a big change in our life when we go from Sunday to Monday. Monday. It should just be a carry-through. In fact, when we come here on Sundays, this should just be a gathering of all of us doing together what each one of us has been doing throughout the week. Your worship, your praising of God, your singing songs, your reading the Bible, your studying the Bible, your prayer, all of that stuff is done throughout the week and then we come together, we get to do it all in one big group. And then tomorrow we do it separately again. It's not supposed to be your only source of spiritual nourishment. That's supposed to happen every single day. The second thing we need to learn from this is that we need to join a community of people who crave justice and righteousness. And this is really interesting to me, how Paul tells Timothy, pursue righteous living. And then he says, enjoy the companionship of people who call on the Lord with pure hearts. What is he saying there? This is gonna help you with that. You need to pursue righteous living and faith and love and peace. And you know what's gonna help you with that? Get with other people who do that too. You need to be involved in life with other people who are also hungering and thirsting after justice and righteousness. Now, you may already have that in your life, but if you don't, we have a great tool for you at efree.org groups. It's a place where you can go and find a group to be involved in. Some of them are based on mutual interests. Some of them are during the week with a small group. Some of them are on Sunday morning with a bit of a larger group that gets together. Some of them are for men. Some of them are for women. We even have a group for people who don't really know where else they want to go, but they want to get help with whatever they're struggling with. And it could be anything, any, any kind of sin struggle that they have in life called Celebrate Recovery. And if you want to be a part of that, that's on Friday nights at six o'clock in our chapel right here, every Friday. You can come and be a part of that group. And you don't have to stay there forever, but it's a great place to start if you don't know where to go. Get into a community with other people who are also hungering and thirsting for righteousness, for justice. That's going to help you in your walk with God. One last thing, and that is this. Trust only in Jesus to make you righteous. First John 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, and then it's up to us to become righteous. If you know your Bible, that's not what the verse says. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That means he does the work. It's not up to you to make yourself righteous. It's not up to you to beat yourself over the head. All right, I made a mistake again. I can't believe it. You bring that to Jesus. You say, Jesus, would you make me righteous? Would you cleanse me? Would you purify me? My thoughts, my desires, even if I'm just being off two degrees and I'm pursuing counterfeit righteousness, Lord, Would you cleanse me of that? Would you put me on the right path, the right track? Now, for some people, you may have never trusted in Jesus to save you like we've been talking about today. See, a lot of people think that if they do enough good, maybe that will be acceptable to God. Or if they do enough good to outweigh their bad, or if they do more good than other people and God will grade on a curve, but that's not what Jesus is saying here. If we follow the Beatitudes, what Jesus is introducing is the gospel, It's what he's about to live out and make possible for them. That we have to come to God as spiritual beggars who bring nothing to him and say, God, I've got nothing. I've got no righteousness that's worth anything. I'm a sinner. And to confess that and to be broken over that and to mourn that and to come before him with humility, not pride, not, well, you ought to accept me. Not, you better let me in. Not, I'm better than that person. Not, you're not a loving God if you don't accept me. But with humility and say, I don't deserve it at all. I recognize I deserve nothing from you, God. But I want justice. I want righteousness. Not just for others. In my life, I want to be right. I want to be right before you. The promise of Jesus is that those who do this will be what? Satisfied. And not satisfied because of anything they do. Satisfied because of what God does in us. His righteousness applied to us. And then one day, for those of us who have done that, we will be a part of God's new heaven and new earth where God's righteousness will be done all the time. And that hunger and that craving for righteousness and justice will be finally satisfied once and for all because everything that's done will be in accordance with God's will. It'll be what he wants to be done. It'll be right. That's when we will finally be satisfied in our craving for righteousness, for justice. Now, if you're someone that has never trusted in Jesus like that, today is an opportunity for you to pray and talk to God, to go through those steps, to admit your spiritual poverty, your brokenness, to mourn your sin, to come before him with humility and say, God, I I bring nothing to this. I ask for you to apply your righteousness to my account. I realize that my spiritual bank account is is bankrupt, and I need your righteousness applied to me because I can't do this on my own. And the promise of Jesus and the promise of Paul is that when you do that, he does apply Jesus' righteousness to you and you become a new person in him. Now today, we're gonna close in a song in a little bit and after we do, there's gonna be people up here to pray with you and maybe something that we've talked about this morning is gonna have a special kind of meaning for you or you want someone to pray for you. This would be a time to come forward and let us know that but I know that sometimes coming forward isn't such an exciting thing to do and so we've changed our cards in the back of the pews a little bit And there's a spot in there where if you want to share something with us, maybe a prayer request, maybe you have decided to trust in Jesus today for the first time, and you want to let us know about that so we can pray with you and follow up with you, just fill out the card, and you can drop it off at the Welcome Center on your way out today. Or if you want to come forward for prayer, we'll be here to pray with you today. Would you bow your heads with me? Jesus, thank you for your sacrifice for us on the cross. Thank you for dying so that we can have life. Thank you for applying your righteousness to my account because there is no way that I could ever earn that righteousness on my own. Thank you, Lord, for making it possible for me to crave justice and righteousness and then making it possible for me to be satisfied. Not that it'll ever happen perfectly in this life, but we have that hope of the future that is to come when finally all of our desires for righteousness and justice will be fulfilled. Lord, help us to have the proper diet this week. Help us to pursue true righteousness in you. I pray that you would help us to have great relationships with other people in the body of Christ who would also hunger and thirst for righteousness and encourage each other in that effort. Thank you for the great hope that you give us, Lord. We praise you for paying it all for us because we could not do it. We owe everything to you. And In Jesus' name I pray, amen.